Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. This is chapter 1. We're starting all over again. No, I'm just joking. (laughs) Really, open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. This is our last sermon on the book of Genesis. It's been about a year and a half that we've been in this book, and I'm, I'm a little sad to, to bring it to a close, but you know, God has some things in store for us as we move into 2015. But I want to begin this Christmas Sunday with a question. It's a, it's a simple question, but yet it's a profound question, and it's a question that every single one of us needs to come to grips with. And here's the question. What is... Worship. What is worship? Is worship a particular type of style of songs that we sing? Is worship a a kind of a warm, fuzzy feeling we get on the inside that makes us feel closer to God? Is worship only happen when you're up in the mountains by yourself experiencing um, this great time with God alone in nature? Is worship dependent upon the praise team or myself getting you whipped up to to be prepared to worship? What is worship? Listen to the words of A.W. Tozer. Worship of a living God is man's whole reason for existence. That is why we are born and that is why we are born from above. That is why there's also the church. The Christian church exists to worship God first of all. Everything else must come second or third or fourth or fifth. We were created to worship. That's why we exist. The Scottish pastor James Stewart has given the best definition of worship that I've ever come across. Listen to how he defines worship. To quicken the conscience by the holiness of God. To feed the mind with the truth of God, to purge the imagination by the beauty of God, to open the heart to the love of God and to devote the will to the purpose of God. The totality of who we are, our hearts, our minds, our imaginations, our will, everything that we are is to bow in supreme adoration to God and God alone and to live a life of worship. So does that describe you this morning? The totality of who you are, your mind, your emotions, your your imagination, your thoughts, your heart, your will, is everything wrapped up in praising and worshiping and giving your life to the living God? Or are you like how John Piper describes it? For many, Christianity has become a grinding out of general doctrinal laws from a collection of biblical facts. But the childlike wonder and awe have died. The scenery and the poetry and music of the majesty of God have dried up like a forgotten peach in the back of the refrigerator. As the Westminster Shorter Catechism says, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That is worship. 1 Corinthians 10.31 So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. 
underline that verse in your Bible. It's probably one of the most important verses about worship. 2 Corinthians 5, 9. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him, to glorify Him, to please Him. And Paul says in Colossians three seventeen, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Worship. So as we come to the end of the book of Genesis, and as we've been on this journey for a year and a half, I hope it's been more than just a time to fill your mind with some interesting historical biblical facts or to read some exciting biblical stories. You see, the whole goal of studying the Bible is to lead us to worship the God of the Bible, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, the living God, Yahweh, the great I Am, He's our same God as well. And the ultimate goal of why we do anything is to point us to to worship. Listen to Tozer again. The experiences of men who walked with God in olden times agree to teach that the Lord cannot bless a man until he has first conquered him. The degree of blessing enjoyed by any man will correspond exactly with the completeness of God's victory over him. God's going to bless you. He's got to conquer you. Have we not seen God conquering men in the Old Testament as we've looked over these past year and a half? I can think of Jacob who wrestled with that mysterious man in the middle of the night and God torqued his hip and changed his name from Jacob to Israel. I can think of Joseph who had to endure 13 years in the prison until God eventually elevated him to prime minister and allowed him to provide salvation for his family. And so all of this should lead us to a life of worship. And as we get to the end of Genesis, Genesis chapter 50, 22 through 26, I won't read it, but it's basically the death of Joseph. Joseph dies. That's how Genesis ends. Joseph is buried later on in the promised land, but at this point in time, the scripture ends in Genesis with the death of Joseph. Jacob has died. Isaac has died. Abraham has died. It's the end of the patriarchal age, and you've got the nation of Israel, all 70 of them, living in the land of Goshen in Egypt. But yet, for us, what I want us to do this morning is I want us to step back and take a bird's eye view over the book of Genesis, and I want us to look at the major themes that we've explored over these past year and a half together. I don't know if you remember the title of this sermon series. It's been so long, but Creation, Curse, Covenant. Three big ticket items that show up all throughout Genesis. It is the book of beginnings, Creation, Curse, Covenant. So what I want us to do is I want to explore those three themes this morning, and I want to show you how they relate to Christmas. How do the themes that we've looked at in Genesis point directly to the birth of Jesus Christ? So if you will, let's look at number one, creation. And let's just go to Genesis 1. Creation, theme number one. Very familiar passage of Scripture. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And you go on, and you you see the creation of the universe by God. And and when it says there, God created, it's the Hebrew word baha, and it's only used for God in the Bible. It means he created out of nothing. That God created by the power of his word, if you will. There's many ways that God could have created, but it's amazing that the way that he created the universe and brought it into existence was through the power of his word. God said, let there be light, and there was light. Do you know the very first sermon ever preached was not by a pastor? It was by God. Listen to what one writer said. God's creation begins with a sermon. God preached, and the world was made. God said, let there be light, and there was light. Six sermons are preached in a wonderful sequence. The word of God is proclaimed in heaven's pulpit, and all comes to pass. The preaching forms the universe. The word preached is no empty word. It accomplishes what it pleases and never returns void to him who speaks. In the beginning, God created. How did he create? By speaking, let there be light. Now, let's go to the fulfillment of this passage of Scripture. And it'll be on your screen. I'm not going to have you jumping all around in the Bible. We're going to stay in Genesis, but we're going to put the New Testament text up on the screen. Let's read John 1, 1 through 5, and I want you to see the parallels. It's, it's, it's unmistakable to see the parallels. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, He said, let there be light. John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word. That's speaking of Jesus. The Word. How did God create? By His Word. In the beginning was the Word, Jesus. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Think about this for a moment. Jesus is the consummate, ultimate word of God in the flesh. He is the light of the world. He is the incarnate Son of God. And so this is not quite the Christmas story, John 1. It starts in eternity past. Jesus has always existed. He never came into existence. He never was created. He's he's the eternal, infinite Son of God. But it's interesting that John here calls Jesus the Word and the light. How did God create? With His Word and said, let there be light. Hebrews 1, 1 1-3. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our forefathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. God, through Jesus Christ, created the world, and Jesus upholds the entire universe by the power of his word. And what does Jesus say about himself in John eight twelve? Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me 
We'll never walk in darkness, but we'll have the light of life. Jesus is the uncreated Son of God, the Word of God, who brings light to the world. In the same way that God in the beginning created the world through the power of His Word and said, let there be light. And Jesus stands and offers Himself as the light of the world in the darkness. And so this Christmas, we can love Jesus, we can worship Jesus because He is the living Word of God and the light of the world. So that's theme number one, creation. But there's another theme that shows up very quickly in the book of Genesis. It's a passage of Scripture we've gone back to over and over again. The second theme is curse. Curse. When Adam and Eve disobeyed God and ate the forbidden fruit, they bought death and condemnation and destruction and sin into the human race. They, 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 they made us all become guilty under the curse of sin. We find out in Romans 5.12, Paul says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that's Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. Death came into the world through one man, Adam. And not only that, down in chapter 5, verse 18, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. Condemnation, death, all of this came in because of Adam and Eve's sin. So let's go to the passage of Scripture that we've gone to over and over and over again. And you know which one it's going to be, right? Genesis 3... 15. Some of you paid attention. Genesis 3.15. This is the announcement of the gospel in the very first few chapters of Genesis. It's the very first time God announces that there's going to be a Savior. There's going to be a Messiah. There's going to be one that's going to come and, and crush Satan, who's going to overcome the curse. Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman. He's speaking to the serpent here, to the devil. And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. He shall bruise your head. Who's the he? Who's the he that God's promising? It's the offspring of the woman that's going to come and crush Satan. It's an announcement, it's a promise of Jesus coming as the Messiah to crush the head of Satan and to deal with the curse once and for all. What are some of the words to the, to the Christmas carols that we sing? Think of joy to the world. Now, now, you know, don't start singing it, but normally we think about verse 1, right? Joy to the world, the Lord has come. But think about the second verse. No more let sins and sorrows grow nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found, far as the curse is found, far as, far as the curse is found. What's, what's the writer talking about? What curse is he talking about? Why is Jesus' birth coming to, to get rid of the curse as far as it's found? 
It's because of what happened here in Genesis chapter 3. When Adam and Eve sinned, they brought sin into the world. The entire human race is born under a curse, under condemnation, under death, under, under guilt. And God announces in Genesis 3.15, there's going to come a Savior. There's going to come a Messiah. There's going to come the offspring of the woman. He's going to crush the head of Satan. He's going to deal with the curse as far as the curse is found. And where's the curse found? In every single person that's born without Jesus. And so it's no surprise that when the angel comes and announces the birth of Jesus, what does the angel say to Joseph about this coming seed of the woman? How is Genesis 3.15 fulfilled in the words of the angel? Matthew 1, 20-23. But as he considered these things, this is Joseph, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. What's the mission of Jesus being born? He will be called Jesus. Why? What's his mission? He will save his people from their sins. It doesn't say he might. Jesus is going to try really hard to save his people. What were some of the last words Jesus said on the cross? It is done halfway. It is partially accomplished. It is a potentiality. Now, what does he say? It is finished. And the angel says Jesus is going to come and he's going to save. Save his people from their sins, from the curse, from from what happened when Adam and Eve brought sin into the world. That's why his name's going to be Jesus. And so Jesus doesn't just come as a good man. He doesn't just come as an enlightened guru or or a prophet or, or just a worker of miracles or somebody that just had some great moral teachings. No, Jesus comes as God in the flesh who's going to crush the head of Satan. You should be saying amen, okay? He's going to crush the head of Satan. Romans 16, 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. I don't know about you. This is kind of off the cuff, so if it comes out weird, blame it on me going away from my notes for just a minute, okay? Have there been times in your prayer life where you just got really angry at the work of the devil? Where you've just wanted, like, like, there's been times where I've just been in my prayer time and, and I just this hatred rises in me at the devil because of what he's inflicted on people and what he's done in my life and what he's done in people that I love's life and, and the fact that he's a roaring lion out there ready to, to, to devour people. And I think about the work of the devil and sometimes I just get so angry and, and it's like I hate the devil. But it says here, the prophecy, Christ is going to crush the head of the serpent. Now Jesus ultimately crushed Satan's head Where? At the cross? But if you read Revelation, Jesus is coming back on a white horse. And he's going to crush Satan once and for all and throw him into the lake of fire 
forever and ever to deal with our enemy once and for all. And so when Jesus comes and is born of a virgin and he's going to save his people from his sins, it's that promise that the curse that has come because of Adam and Eve's sin will be conquered by Jesus. So creation, curse, theme number three, covenant. We've spent a year and a half looking at this one family, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. What do you remember about Abraham? He was a pagan moon worshiper living in Ur of the Chaldees in the backside of nowhere, modern-day Iraq. And God majorly interrupted his life and said, Abraham, I'm taking you out of pagan idolatry, and I'm going to make a covenant with you, and I'm going to choose you to be the father of many nations. He, he enters into a covenant with Abraham, a binding covenant. So let's go to Genesis chapter 12. Another very, very important passage of Scripture in the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, is very, very important. Very close to Genesis 3.15. I'm taking us back to some of the big ticket areas in the book of Genesis where we see God's hand at work, especially this is the Abrahamic covenant. This is where God enters into covenant with Abraham. Genesis chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is God's covenant with Abraham. You're going to be a great nation. You're going to be a blessing. You're, you're going to have offspring. All the nations of the earth are going to be blessed through you, Abraham. So, so your existence as a nation is not just to be self-centered and to be drawing in upon yourself, but ultimately through you, the Israelites, and eventually through Christ, the entire world is going to be blessed. Now go to Genesis chapter 15, verses 5 through 6. Genesis 15, 5 through 6. And he brought him outside. He said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. This is that time in Abraham's life where God took him out and said, look up at the stars in the sky and those are going to be your offspring, Abraham. And it says, Abraham believed God and God credited it to him as righteousness. It's a powerful moment in Abraham's life where God again is reconfirming that covenant with him. You're going to have a numerous offspring, Abraham. And then let's go to Genesis 17 for just a moment. Another time where God confirms this covenant. Over and over again, God is reiterating the covenant I'm making with you. Abraham, I'm entering into a covenant with you. Genesis 17, 5 through 8. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. For I've made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring and, your, and after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. God says you're going to be a mighty nation, you're going to have land, you're going to have offspring. But notice what he says here in this passage of Scripture. In this covenant, Abraham, kings are going to come from you. Judah, the lion of the tribe of Judah, is going to bring forth a king, David. 
And eventually, there's going to be the greater king, Jesus. And so God enters into this covenant with the people of Abraham. And eventually, God raises up David to be the king. But then the nation becomes idolatrous after many, many years of failed kings, and they become rebellious and rebellious, and eventually God says, enough's enough, I'm going to kick you out of the promised land, and he sends them into 70 years of Babylonian captivity. And they come back after 70 years, and even after they come back and they rebuild the wall and they rebuild the temple, they're still idolatrous. They're still living in sin. And so God gets silent. Malachi ends. 400 years of silence until John the Baptist in Matthew. But ultimately, God is going to fulfill his promise to Abraham. Kings will come from you, Abraham. Listen to what the angel tells Mary. The angel made an announcement to Joseph and Matthew, but in Luke's gospel, the angel makes an announcement to Mary. Luke chapter 1, 30-33. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Kings will come from you, Abraham, and the ultimate king that will come from you, Abraham, is Jesus. He will reign on the throne of David. Now, after Mary hears these words from the angel, we have what's called the Magnificat. The Magnificat is Mary's prayer of worship, her joyous response. Now, Mary's a good Jewish little girl. She's read her Old Testament. She's read Genesis. She knows what God's promise was to Abraham. So listen to some of the words that she says in the Magnificat in Luke 1, 54-55. Notice what she says. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Mary knows her Old Testament. Mary knows Genesis. Mary knows that God made a promise to Abraham and his offspring. And in her song of praise, she's praising God for the announcement that the angel said to her that that she's going to bear Jesus because in the coming of Jesus, God is fulfilling that covenant that he made with Abraham. Remember Zechariah? One of our elders, Glenn, read about it this morning. He's the father of John the Baptist. He made a prophecy about his son who would pave the way for Jesus. What did Zechariah say? Zechariah knew the Old Testament. Zechariah read Genesis. In Luke 1, 27, I mean, Luke 1, 72 through 75, this is what Zechariah says. To show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all our days. God remembered the oath, the covenant he made with Abraham. Mary said it. Zechariah said it. God gave the covenant to Abraham. You're going to be a great nation. You're going to be a mighty nation. Offspring will come from you. All the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. A king will come through you. And then at the birth of Jesus, that fulfillment of the covenant with Abraham is finally in its fullest sense in the birth of Jesus Christ, the ultimate king, the ultimate offspring, the ultimate seed of the woman. And so this Christmas, we can think about Jesus being the word of God creation we can think about jesus overcoming the curse of sin by dying on the cross and we can also think about jesus being the fulfillment of the covenant that god made with abraham isaac and jacob creation 
curse covenant. Three major themes that we've looked at all through Genesis, but there's one other theme. And it's been subtle, but it's shown up almost every week. It starts with C, to keep the alliteration going. Creation, curse, covenant, call. Call. What do I mean by call? Let's just take a real brief journey. And I want to show you how this shows up through the book of Genesis. Go back to Genesis chapter 4, verse 26. Genesis 4, 26. Genesis 4, 26 says this. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to what? Call upon the name of the Lord. This is the first time that this term shows up in the Bible. Cain is killed Abel. God raises up Seth, the godly line, and through Seth's lineage, the scripture here says that's when people began to, what? Call upon the name of the Lord. They began to pray. They began to worship. They began to call upon the Lord, L-O-R-D in all caps. Yahweh, the Lord. That's when people began to worship, to call upon the name of the Lord. Well, do we see this repeated throughout the book of Genesis? Do we see people worshiping God in Genesis? Do we see people calling upon the name of the Lord? Well, you bet. Let's go to Genesis 12, verse 8. I know it's Bible drill this morning, but we're doing an overview here. Genesis chapter 12, verse 8. This is Abraham. Genesis 12, 8. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. It's the first time Abraham worships God. He builds an altar and he calls upon the name of the Lord. Go to chapter 13, verse 4. to the place where he had made an altar at the first, and there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. Abram called upon the name of the Lord. Go to chapter 21, verse 33. 21, verse 33. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. Over and over again, Abraham's calling upon the name of the Lord. Abraham's worshiping. Abraham's praising God. Abraham is praying to, to the Lord. Do we see this in Isaac's life? I'm glad you asked. Go to Genesis 26, 25. Do we see Isaac doing the same thing? If Abraham called upon the name of the Lord, does his son Isaac do the same thing? Go to Genesis 26, 25. Genesis 26, 25. This is Isaac. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. Isaac's doing the same thing his dad does. What about Jacob? Does Jacob call upon the name of the Lord? Go to Genesis 32. 
32, 26. Genesis 32, 26. He's wrestling with this mysterious man. Then he said, let me go for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. And there he said, you shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask me my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. Now, it doesn't explicitly here say that Jacob called upon the name of the Lord, but when you wrestle with God and you say, I've seen God face to face, he's calling upon the name of the Lord. He's worshiping God. He is a man of worship. That's Jacob. What about Joseph? Let's go to Genesis 45. Nowhere does it explicitly say that Joseph called upon the name of the Lord, but we've looked at Joseph's life for the past probably six weeks. Is Joseph a man of worship? Yes. And when his brothers come to him and everything is is made clear and his brothers are afraid, what does Joseph say about everything that's happened in his life? Genesis 45, 5-8. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in these land two years, and there have yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. Always on the mouth of Joseph, it's God, it's God, it's God. God's doing this, God's done this, God is with me, God is here. God is the one that's directing my paths, it's God. And then let's look at the very last time God speaks in Genesis. Genesis chapter 46, the very last time we hear the words of God. And it's to Jacob, the last of the patriarchs. And if you remember from a few weeks ago, Jacob leaves the promised land and he's going to go down to Egypt to meet Joseph. And it's the very last time that the Israelites are in the promised land until 400 years later during the Exodus. So it's a major pivotal moment. But before he leaves, what does God say to Jacob? Genesis 46, 1. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in vision of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your fathers. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Jacob goes to the place where that was very important for their family, where Abraham had called upon the name of the Lord, where Isaac had called upon the name of the Lord. Jacob goes to that same place and builds an altar, and God speaks and says, I'm going to be with you and make you into a great nation. And that's the last time God speaks until Exodus 3, when the words come out of a burning bush to Moses. So Genesis is a book of worship. This covenant family is calling upon the name of the Lord. They're serving the name of the Lord. Now, they're dysfunctional. We've seen that. They're royally messed up. They got some major issues, but they're a family that God has entered into a relationship with and they're calling upon Him. They're worshiping Him. They're following Him. They're submitting to Him. They're calling upon the name of the Lord. Now, what does that have to do with Christmas? 
Go to Luke chapter 2. Let's bring this to a wrap-up. Genesis is not to lead us to, it, to get to the end of a sermon series and say, that was a good sermon series where we learned a lot. No, it should lead us to worship the way that we've seen these patriarchs worship. Genesis chapter 2. Let's pick up in verse 13. I'm sorry, Luke chapter 2, verse 13. Luke 2, 13. And... Suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest on earth, peace among those with whom he's pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that's happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in their heart. Verse 20, And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Glory to God in the highest. What do the shepherds do when they see the baby Jesus? Worship is more than God has called us to do, to live a life of worship. Worship is more than God has called us to do, to live a life of worship. Worship is more than just singing songs on a Sunday morning. Worship is more than just standing and, listen, and, and listening to preaching. Worship is a lifestyle. Romans 12 1 through 2, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. Worship. So let me do this for us. As we think about Christmas, and as we lead into 2015, I want to give you four practical ways that you can live a life of worship this Christmas and also into 2015. A lifestyle of worship. A life of calling upon the name of the Lord like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph did. A life that emulates these guys that we've been looking at over the past year and a half. So what are four ways that you can live a life of worship in 2015 and this Christmas? Here's number one. Make Sunday morning worship a top priority. As you go into 2015, make gathering together on the Lord's Day with His people a priority. Hebrews chapter 10, 24 through 25 says, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Don't neglect to meet together, but make it a top priority to say, you know what, the most important time in my week is right here when I gather with God's people to be fed, to be encouraged, to be loved, to worship. This is where I get the fuel. This is where I get the motivation. This is where I get the encouragement to go out and deal with the, the other six days of the week that I have to face life. And so, so as we go into the new year, just make corporate worship a priority that you would come and be a part of what God is doing in corporate worship. Here's number two. You set aside dedicated time daily to pray and seek the Lord. In other words, a quiet time. 
daily time alone with God to pray. Listen to what this says about Jesus in Mark 1.35. In rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. Jesus got up early, went by himself, and spent time in prayer. If Jesus did that, and he needed time alone, and he needed time to pray, how much more do we need it? Colossians 4.2, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Number three, commit to read and study the Bible regularly in order to obey. Regularly. Read your Bible regularly. Psalm 119, 9-11, how can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. And then in Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Out on the Welcome Center table, we've got the Bible reading plan for next year. You can also go on the app in the app store and get it on Uversion, the Uversion app. I would encourage you to make the beginning of 2015 a year where you read the Bible every day. You can read through the whole Bible in a year. We're going to do it as a church. We're going we're to try to be all together in the same Bible reading plan so that we can all read the Bible together. But, but spend time daily. That's the way you worship God is through spending time daily in His Word. And here's number four. Pursue meaningful relationships with others to show the love of Christ. Pursue meaningful relationships. Would you just make a commitment that 2015 is going to be a year where I'm going to take risks and I'm going to pursue some meaningful relationships with people. It could be people in my growth group. That could be people in my neighborhood. That can be people that I, that I work with. But I'm going to pursue. That means you chase after you. You make intentional, meaningful, not just casual, but a meaningful relationship with others so that I can show the love of Christ. Listen to what Jesus says in John 13, 34 through 36. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You're also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have a fish on the back of your car. That's the uninspired version, right? By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you carry a really big Bible. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have Caleb playing in the background. What does it say? If you have love for one another. So pursue some meaningful relationships with others this year. So what is worship? It's the totality of our lives, our mind, our emotion, our will, our heart, everything that we are engaged in serving and loving and living for Jesus. The totality of who we are. We were created to worship and to give our lives totally to Him. And let me ask you a very important question. How does Genesis begin? It begins in a perfect garden with the tree of life, Adam and Eve walking in perfect fellowship with each other and in perfect fellowship with their God. How does the Bible end? A garden. It's called the new heavens and the new earth. What's in the new heavens and the new earth? The tree of life. And it's not just Adam and Eve walking in fellowship with one another, it's the church, God's people walking in fellowship with one another, worshiping perfectly our one true God. So the Bible is written this way, beginning, middle, beginning. Have you thought of it that way? God started the story in Genesis. 
And the story is continuing to be unfolded right now as God is adding more and more people to his family through the, the offspring of, of, of Abraham coming into the faith. But there's going to be that final day when God makes all things new. So here's what I want you to think about as we end Genesis. I want you to think about all the things that we've learned in Genesis and it let, let it lead you to a life of worship, but I want you to also think about Genesis leads us to Revelation. So how does Revelation end? Let's read it. Revelation 22, 1 through 5. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, brightest crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed. The curse will be gone. But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And His servants will worship Him. They will see His face. And His name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Father, as we come before you on this Christmas Sunday, we want to be a people who worship you with the totality of our lives. With our hearts, with our minds, with our imagination, with our will, with our emotion, with, with our thoughts, with our feet and hands, our bodies, Lord, everything that we are, we want to live lives of worship. And Father, we want to be a people that call upon the name of the Lord. And, and Lord, we're so thankful that in the creation of the world, as you created the world through the power of your word and said, let there be light, Jesus, you're the living word that's the light of the world. And as the curse came because of Adam and Eve, Jesus, you've come to be born to, to overcome the curse through your death. And Lord, just as you made a covenant with Abraham to, to, to enter into this binding relationship with him, to, to be an everlasting offspring and to have a, have a people, Jesus, you're the fulfillment of that as the ultimate offspring of Abraham, the ultimate king, the ultimate one through whom the entire world will be blessed. And Lord, just as Genesis starts with the tree of life and one couple living in perfect unity with you, we look forward to the day where we're all together as the bride of Christ there in the new heavens and the new earth with the tree of life living forever with you as our light, seeing you face to face with no curse because Jesus, you're the victorious lamb. May this Christmas be a time of worship as we think about the fact that you, Jesus, have come to be born to crush the head of the serpent and to extend your kingdom into the darkness by being the light of the world. If there's anybody in this room, Lord, that's never trusted you as their Lord and Savior, they've never called upon you to be their king, would today be their day of salvation? 
Would they cry out to you today in repentance and in faith, trusting you, Jesus, as the only way to forgive our sins and to give us eternal life. Thank you for being born, Jesus. Thank you for Christmas. May this Christmas be a time of worship where we don't get caught up in all the trappings of this season, but we have time set aside